Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Well, if it looks good on paper and other people are impressed, maybe that means it's the right thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, one of the main lessons I learned was that you can have a job that on paper is perfect um, the right company, the right title, the right salary, the right kind of influence, right? Prestige, you might say, or your parents are super impressed, or it looks great on LinkedIn. But if deep down, it, you know that it's not the right fit for you, that's on you, because no one else is going to say something. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more 
and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Smiley, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I uh, came across you and was introduced to you by way of Amber Ray, who was a former guest uh, here on the Unmistakable Creative back when we first rebranded as Unmistakable Creative. And um, so I, I, you know, having read through your book and, and just kind of done some digging, I had to start with this question: How in the world did you end up with a middle name like Smiley, and what is the significance of that? <laughs> yeah, it's actually it's a fun story. I um, my actual it's my middle name is actually Sandor. It's my nickname, Smiley. It's a nickname from high school. So I got it freshman year of high school. I, I first week of high school, I wanted to play a sport, and obviously, um, well, you all don't know what I look like, but I'm pretty small, so I wasn't going to make <laughs> the football team. Uh, and our soccer team was like you know one of the best teams in the state, so that wasn't going to happen. Uh, so I went out for cross country which at the time I actually had no idea what it was, but apparently you just go running. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we went for, uh, I grew up in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, in Boston. And so you just go running on the Charles river every day for anywhere between, you know, five and 10 miles. So that first week we were kind of, uh, doing a hill workout, just running up and down hills over and over again. So I'm kind of running up and down the hills, just kind of like smiling, just, you know, like, Hey, this is great. And, you know, my coach is this Boston guy. So he's like, what the hell are you doing smiling, kid? Stop smiling. Stop puking, kid. Stop puking. <laughs> and so uh, the coach and the team uh, called me Smiley after that. And the nickname is kind of stuck uh, through college and then, you know, up into the present. I had a, a couple of friends from high school at my, at my college at Wesleyan University. So there are a lot of Adams out there, but there are not too many Smileys. <laughs> so... Tell me something. Um, from cross country, what did you learn uh, in terms of life lessons that you have applied to your life and your career going forward? Oh, great question. <laughs> um, I think I could write a book about this. But um, I, I think running is a very useful uh, metaphor for kind of the creative process because it's all about practice. Mm-hmm. It's all about what you put in and not the output. Right. So it's about waking up on a cold day in Boston on Sunday at seven in the morning 
and you can't really go out the night before, like all your friends are partying and they're drinking and you can't go out because you have to wake up at seven in the morning and go run 15 miles in the freezing cold Boston winter, you know, and you got to put on your tights and your hat and you look ridiculous (laughs) and you're running out there. And that's how you become a, you know, that's how you become fit. That's how you're able to do better in a race. So for me, cross country was really about kind of that endurance. And the the motto of our team was uh, no guts, no glory. Mm-hmm. We had that on all our t-shirts and we would always, you know, that'd be a part of our chant. And, you know, it's, it's cross country taught me about digging in and, and, and putting it all out there and, and that idea of guts and just throwing it all. And you kind of, you puke sometimes and you puke all over yourself and cross country, you know, a lot of people don't know about the sport, but people that do know, know it's really hardcore, <laughs> mm-hmm right? A race is a 5k in order to be able to run a 5k really well. You, you have to do a lot of long runs as training. Mm-hmm. So you do a lot of workouts, you do five, 10, 15 mile runs on the weekends. And this is in high school, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's hardcore. And, you know, it all, it also kind of taught me the importance of team. I think I was one of the slowest kids on the team. We had a really, really good cross country team at Cambridge and Ridge and Latin high school where I grew up. And I was the seventh man on the varsity team. Um, so I was, but I was also the captain. So it was kind of this, you know, I was the motivational kind of like, let's get it on. Like, we're going to be amazing, you know, pump everyone up. And I would be last, I would place last (laughs) of the team, but I had that spirit and that's so important. Uh Right. Um, and you know, you know, it's like this, it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight and the dog. Mm -hmm. And, And for me, that cross country was really about that team spirit. Everyone came together. Everyone mattered. You looked out for each other. Um, so I learned a lot of kind of about, you know, being part of something greater than yourself. So two questions come from that. Um, one is, is a question about endurance. Do you think that that sort of endurance persistence grit, you know, that defines so many significant accomplishments can be cultivated without having done something like cross country? And if so, how, because I I think that for me, it's not uncommon to find some sort of athletic pursuit or activity that drives a lot of the, the work of the people that I've interviewed. And the other is this paradox of being, you know, the seventh man, the slowest person on the team, and yet also being the cheerleader. Like, how do you maintain that level of enthusiasm when, you know, the results themselves don't necessarily, um, support that level of enthusiasm, if that makes any right. sense. Yeah. Great question. I think that, you know, it doesn't have to be an athletic pursuit in order to kind of, to see these gains, but I think it has to be some form of pursuit. Mm-hmm. So you often find among creatives or artists or entrepreneurs, this sense of drive and, you know, maybe it comes from, you know, high school volleyball, or maybe it comes from being an athlete or a climber or a runner. Um, I meet a lot of, uh, of entrepreneurs and, and creatives that are runners, which is really interesting. I think there's something there. Um, but I think you have to be, have, have kind of spent time really working your body in some way or working hard towards something. I think the other thing people get grit from is life experience, right? Mm -hmm. So whether it's growing up in poverty or being the first person in your family to attend college or overcoming some obstacle or, um, escaping, uh, oppression or tyranny in a country you grew up in, you see a lot of that. So it's that same sense of kind of grit, endurance, overcoming obstacles, pushing yourself beyond limits, um, being out there in the mud and the rain, sweat pouring down, you puking on yourself, like you need to take a shit, but you can't because you're in the middle of a race. And this kind of, you know, having overcome something, I think is, is what it's all about. And, um, I think you can cultivate that by experience, you know, but by putting yourself in conditions where 
it's not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, you know, I think that, you know, you don't have to be the best person on the team, but you have to be the best version of yourself. So even though I was the seventh man on the cross country team, I was still comparing myself to my, you know, my previous times. And you're always mm-hmm. trying in, in track and field or in, in any sport trying to create what's called a PR, your personal record. Mm-hmm. Um, so, hey, I ran, you know, 1730 last week. Uh, I run a run 1721 this week. So uh, even though I was never going to be the beat my other teammates, I could beat myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you kind of hold yourself up against that standard, no matter what, who's racing, whether it's the, the best person on the in the field or the worst person, they're also running against the clock. Mm. And, you know, so that I think that's important. That's, that's a really interesting uh, observation because, you know, I played organized sports up until ninth grade when I realized I sucked, like really bad <laughs> on all the teams. So I, I did, you know, I played football in Texas where, you know, if you've ever seen Friday Night Lights – you know that being an Indian kid in seventh grade, I'm not genetically predisposed for things because there are literally people the size of grown men who play seventh grade football in Texas. Um, <laughs> but I, I think the the interesting thing to me is that you were self-aware enough to use your own records as a basis for comparison as opposed to other people at such a young age. Why do you think that is and where did that come from? Yeah, I think there's a kind of a reality or humility there that I, you know, I think my family kind of... Uh, kind of taught me that, you know, you're not going to be, <laughs> you might not be the, the best and that's okay. Um, but you can still be great. Mm. Right. And you just have to know reality. Like I, I was a, I was a pretty small kid. I, you know, like, you know, like yourself, I wasn't, I wasn't huge. I wasn't that strong. You know, I'd go into the gym cause you still have to work out when you're an athlete. And even if you're a runner and like, you know, people might, in the gym would be, you know, bench pressing 250 pounds. And, you know, I had these scrawny little muscles, um, and looked ridiculous. You know, I was like half the size of these kids. There's a, there's a photo from me in little league. Uh, cause I, again, I used to play baseball and then realized, of course I was awful and, and couldn't really play baseball beyond, you know, sixth grade or whatever. Um, there's a photo of me and I'm literally like, I go up to like just above the kneecap of the catcher on the team. <laughs> um, and it was hilarious, but I loved playing baseball and I loved being part of the team. That for me, it was always, "Hey, I'm clearly, from you know, a self awareness standpoint, I'm not that good at this sport, but I love the team aspect. I love sports. I lo- I love baseball as a kid. I love kind of being part of that team spirit. Like my favorite thing about being on the cross country team was like the night before a race, like watching some movie and like having a pasta dinner and then like having this the coach give a, a you know a motivational talk and like everyone right before the race, like getting pumped up. Like I loved all that aspect of it. So, you know, it's not just about the final score or the time you run, you know, it's, it's this team, you know, creating kind of the sense of, Hey, you might not run great, but the team has to run great. You know, mm-hmm. do you still run just out of curiosity? I do. Yeah. I run about six days a week, five or six days a week, uh, much, you know, leisurely. I, I, I sometimes, <laughs> uh, don't even bring a watch, but yeah, I live in San Francisco and I run in Golden Gate Park almost every day. And it's kind of my release. It's become a form of meditation for me. I just, uh, I run first thing in the morning before I've, you know, opened my computer, checked email, mm-hmm. um, looked at my phone and it's just kind of a way of every day. I know I'm starting the day kind of moving my body and sweating a little bit and, it feels great. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, I want to start actually talking about your career and your work. And where I want to start is by asking, you know, one, what did you want to be when you grew up when you were a kid? Um, 
how did that impact the choices you've made and what have you done since college? You know, I looked at this wandering journey that you described and the other question that that, you know, caused me to ask is what is the through line to all this work? Yeah, great question. Um, I think when I was little, um, I wanted to, to play sports, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is ironic, but, um, yeah, I wanted to be, you know, I grew up in Boston. I wanted to play on the, the Red Sox. Oh. Um, but, um, you know, I think as I got a little bit older, I obviously, you know, you know, that's not going to happen, but I really loved, uh, sports journalism and sports mm-hmm. writing, um, in, in high school and, and was kind of part of the high school newspaper and, and really enjoyed writing, um, in high school and then started in college, got really interested in film and documentary. And, um, I've always really been, been interested in storytelling, um, and using kind of stories to, you know, shine the light on, on certain issues and kind of make society a little bit better. Um, having said that, I've done such a multitude of different things. Um, you know, after high school, after college, I, I moved to New York to work in the film industry because I had majored in film and, uh, produced a short film and worked as a location scout and then moved to Argentina to work for a film festival and then worked on the Obama campaign in 2008, which brought me back to DC, uh, to work at the USP score in government. Um, and then I quit that and moved to San Francisco to become a writer. So in some ways, uh, there's no <laughs> kind of direct correlation, uh, mm-hmm. between all of these things. But I think that there is some form of, uh, a connection to communications and storytelling and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always kind of kept a journal since I was ki- a kid. I've always enjoyed writing. I've always enjoyed capturing people's stories. And it's interesting that it took me, um, almost 30 years to turn that into a, a professional career, um, or actually, or, or know that that's what I really want to be doing. You hear all these stories about, Oh, you have to know your calling. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think sometimes you actually just have to experience lots of things and you find it that way. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't kind of pop down from a tree somewhere because you're, you know, meditating or you go to Bali <laughs> or you read, you know, uh, a book, you actually just live your life and start to realize, I don't like that. I don't like that. That's awesome. Um, or I like some aspects of this, but I, you know, for me, I did a lot of writing in my job in government, but I didn't like the environment in which I was doing it. It was very bureaucratic and administrative and not very creative. Uh Um, I didn't really like what I was writing about. So you kind of say, Hey, well, I like this, what I'm doing here. I like this skill, but I want to apply it to a different, um, a different thing. So yeah, I think it's about being aware of, uh, of listening to yourself and, and what you really care about and, um, I'm, I'm so grateful now that I've found something, um, that I really want to dig my teeth into. So two questions. Um, I knew about the Peace Corps thing cause I read the book, uh, and it was interesting cause it seemed like such a, a, an amazing job to have, you know, at such a young age. Like I kind of look at my own life and thought, you know, wow, I, I would never have said anything like this about the jobs that I had when I was younger. Every one of them was kind of like, this is what you this is the pain I have to endure in order to get to something I actually like doing. Um, one, I'm curious kind of, you know, what you learned from that time in government that you have applied to your life going forward. Like what are the most important things you learned from the Peace Corps? Um, and then, you know, the thing that I want to really kind of talk about is the media narrative around millennials and this sense that, oh, millennials are awful, millennials are entitled or all this other stuff. But I think what I see is in, in my mind, especially because so many of the people that interview fall into the category of a millennial or like are right on the edge of it, 
is this tremendous sense of deep dissatisfaction and a deep desire to find meaning in their work. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, the Peace Corps lessons and then, you know, um, the, what is like, you obviously have a much, you know, more informed perspective on this millennial media narrative than I do. So I'm really curious to hear about it. Sure. Um, yeah. So the Peace Corps, I was working as the special assistant to the director of global operations um, and the director of global operations at the Peace Corps is, you know, one of the the, the main senior people there. So the, the number three person in the agency. Um, and basically, you know, on paper, this job is amazing. It's a good salary, healthcare benefits, job security. I got to sit in on senior staff meetings. I got to, you know, go to meetings with the director, write talking points and speeches, even do some travel uh, abroad. Um, so, on paper, it's great. <laughs> you know, you go and tell people this at happy hour, you give them your business card and people are like, oh my God, that's amazing. I would love that job. And I would meet people that had already gone to get their, um, you know, get a master's degree in international relations. And they'd be like, I would kill for that job. And I don't even have a master's. So you go around telling people this job that, you know, doesn't really fit for you, but they love it. So I think a lot of people, and especially uh, young people and millennials kind of feel this, well, if it looks good on paper and other people are impressed, maybe that means it's the right thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, one of the main lessons I learned was that you can have a job that on paper is perfect. Um, the right company, the right title, the right salary, the right kind of influence, right? Prestige, you might say, or your parents are super impressed or it looks great on LinkedIn, but if deep down it, you know that it's not the right fit for you, that's on you because no one else is going to say something, right? No one else is going to say to someone who's working at the Peace Corps at the age of 28 with that kind of job, hey, you're not doing so great. You should, you know, you really need to get your life together because on paper, your life is perfect. You're doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was this kind of sense of, oh, hey, yeah, that's a great title. It's a great position. I'm doing well and I'm really unhappy. Uh, I need to go back to the drawing board here. And I meet a lot of young people, you know, I meet a lot of people who have a job at Google or Airbnb or an amazing company. And that's great. Again, it sounds good. But if they're not enjoying what they're doing every day from nine to five or nine to seven or nine to nine, at the end of the day, that's kind of what matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so that was a main lesson is kind of figuring out what you actually care about. And I think this, you know, this dovetails nicely into this, you know, millennial, what millennials are looking for in the workplace. And we hear all the time of, you know, this is the entitled generation, the me, me, me generation. If you actually look at the statistics, uh, 50% of millennials would take a pay cut to find work that matches their values. 90% want to use their skills for good. 75% think the business world is getting it wrong, that businesses are too focused on their own agenda and not focused enough on improving society. So actually, this is a generation that really wants to align their work with purpose, that wants to find meaningful work, um, and is not really about me, 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 although it might look like that externally. Um, it's actually about, hey, what can, how can I find something that's really meaningful to me? Um, and, and I think that part of that is sometimes you know, leaving a job that's really amazing on paper. And look, the Peace Corps is one of the most meaningful organizations in the world, right? The mission of the Peace Corps is to promote world peace and friendship, right? It wasn't like I was, you know, selling chemicals or, (laughs) you know, doing something evil, right? Uh Right? This is a very meaningful job, but it wasn't meaningful for me. 
and and I think that you you meet a lot of millennials who are dealing with this term this tor- turmoil of how do you actually find something that's that's creating a social impact that's doing that's creating purpose in the world but also kind of has that personal connection to your own interests your gifts your skills uh, what you care about where you want to live the type of people you want to surround yourself with and it's hard and I and I think it I think it's a really hard thing to do but that's kind of why I wrote this book was because I was in this position at the age of 28 where seemingly it was all good. Mm-hmm. On Facebook, it looked great. <laughs> and how do you tell someone that's an adult, hey, I have a great job. So many of my friends are unemployed. There's a recession. I'm super, I'm very lucky. I feel grateful to have this job. I'm not a, you know, I'm not ignorant of the fact that many people in this world, you know, are struggling to get a job, you know, um, at a restaurant or, or, or can't provide for their family. I know I'm, I have this privilege here and that doesn't mean I should be miserable the rest of my life. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of balance there that just because you have the ability to choose doesn't mean you should feel bad and not, and, and, and spend your days miserable because other people don't have that access. Right. And I think what actually happens when people pursue what's meaningful to them is they create more opportunities for those with less pr- uh, privilege or access. So I wrote a lot about in the in, in the quarter life breakthrough in my book, I write a lot about people who 20 somethings and 30 somethings who actually started organizations, both for profit and nonprofit that are actually creating more opportunities for people in their communities. Um, whether it's Money Think, which is a nonprofit in Chicago that teaches financial literacy and entrepreneurship to urban youth, or Goldie Blocks, which is here in, in the Bay Area, um, which is a toy company that teaches young girls engineering skills to try to create uh, more opportunities for female engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, these are people that when they had their breakthrough, it wasn't like they went to do something, me, 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 let me just make lots of money. It was actually, wait, I want to spend my life giving back in some some capacity, right? Not necessarily mm-hmm. volunteering or, or moving to a, the developing world somewhere, but how can I use my work um, to create more opportunities for others? How can I uh, align my work with purpose? How can I think of my work as from a point of service? Mm-hmm. Even if that means selling something, how can I treat that as kind of a, uh, how can I serve, you know, use my gifts to, to empower other people around me? All right. So I want to get into three specific areas in the book that really caught my attention. Um, one was this idea of, you know, sort of getting away from climbing a career ladder and looking at what you called career lily pads. So, um, you know, I remember very distinctly, you know, you said climbing a career ladder limits potential, which seems so counterintuitive on the surface. I get that like more than you can possibly imagine. But um, I, I, I'm curious, you know, like based on your own experience, the experience with the people that you've interviewed and spoken to and worked with uh, throughout your work, um, how did you come to that conclusion? And what is the thing that you want people to know about that? Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about the career ladder mindset, this is the mindset we've been told to follow kind of since we're, we're kids, even since high school, right? Take AP classes, do well on the SATs, go to a good college, pick your major, get an entry-level job in that field and ride your way up the ladder until you retire and hopefully with a pension, uh, if pensions even exist (laughs) when we're older. Um, And the truth is when you start to interview people, young or old, about their career paths, they just don't go in straight lines. 
Mm-hmm. They do not, you know, they, you know, people go from one field to the other, they major in this, and then they realize they don't like working in it. Um, they find, you know, they fall in love at the age of 26 and move to India and work there, whatever it is, they, they kind of, these, these paths are not linear. And the truth is that in the current job market, the average person, the average millennials leaving their job every about two to three years, mm-hmm. the average person of any age is switching jobs about every five years. So we think of millennials as job hoppers, but the truth is we're all kind of job hoppers in the current economy because of rapid changes in technology, um, globalization, and an increasingly flexible job market. Uh, already almost 30, 35% of the American workforce is freelance. That's mm-hmm. 50 million Americans. That number is only expected to increase. So we need a mindset that kind of embraces this instability and and I think – this idea that the, the workplace is much more in flux than it ever was. I think that in the 70s, the 80s, you could kind of say, hey, climb this, this corporate career ladder, and it was realistic and a good option. Now it's just frankly not available to even people that want to do that yeah. <laughs> because, because the you know, it, uh, corporate environment is changing so rapidly. So we, we, I, I think it's important to kind of create a new metaphor, a new way of thinking about careers that's much more empowering and reflective of the current market and the current economy. So if you think about a career ladder, it moves in one direction up. If you want to do something different, like move to San Francisco and become a writer, you got to hop off and start at the bottom. Now, I like to think of, uh, in, in the book, I use this idea of the, the lily pad mindset. Uh, which was inspired by a friend. And it's this idea that, you know, you can hop in any direction to the left, you know, sideways. And there is no really backwards, right? If you think about it, you're 28, you're working at the Peace Corps, uh, great job. um, But you want to move to San Francisco and be a writer and start supporting social entrepreneurs. Is that really going backwards? No, it's just kind of making a shift. And, you know, the surface of the lily pad looks different. But if you think about lily pads, if a pond of lily pads, all the roots are connected underneath. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what, what's important to you, what's meaningful to you. Um, and you're kind of getting closer and closer to your purpose as you, as you build your career. Um, and I, I think the, the, that sometimes people think of this metaphor and they're like, well, lily pads, there's so many of them. People are just going to quit their jobs every six months. Mm-hmm. And you should do that. I think that that's really bad career advice, right? Because <laughs> you'll never find meaning if you do that. You'll also never probably make a living and you'll piss off a lot of people and, and your employers in the process. But I think that you do have to constantly and consistently consider what you care most about, mm-hmm. Right. And always be kind of checking in and doing that self-reflection process, which we don't really teach adults to do, right? In, in college, you take all these classes, but very few times, you know, do you actually ask yourself what you care about most? Um, and then, you know, we don't really have those structures to do that as an adult. So you kind of con- consistently need to be checking in and saying, hey, do I like this? What aspects of my job do I really like? What can I do more of? What do I find meaningful? Um, even if I'm not going to switch jobs... I might hop to a different lily pad within my own company simply by taking on a new project or, or doing a side project, right? Maybe mm-hmm. I have this great job that, that provides for my family, but I want to start a podcast, right? That's kind of, you know, going to a new lily pad, right? And when you're on the career ladder, it's harder to do that. So I, I think it's a much more empowering way of thinking about careers, uh, you know, for this day and age. And it's it, it, much more useful for people to think about the fact that, hey, you're going to have 15, 20, 25 different jobs in your career. 
I know that sounds scary. I'm sorry to be the breaker of bad news, but that's the reality. That's what the data is showing. So how can we treat that as an opportunity and possibility and not this moment of dread, right? Mm -hmm. All too often, we're like, oh my God, I got to switch jobs. This is the worst. Um, but how can it be something amazing and something where you actually can increase your fulfillment, increase your happiness, and empower other people in your community? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hmm. So uh, I think you brought up something very important, something that I want to dig deeper into, which is this idea that this is a moment of dread. I am wondering, what do you think it is mindset-wise that inhibits people uh, from developing this ability to hop from one thing to another? Yeah, I think that I think that this idea is kind of perpetuated by, you know, this that you you need to have had, you know, the stamp of approval. 
from society in order to do something. Uh, and one of the things that I learned the most in my journey and in, in writing this book is that the people that seem to succeed give themselves permission, right? You know, and Seth Godin talks about this a lot, but this idea that, you know, if you're waiting for Penguin Random House to call you a writer, if, if you're waiting um, to get a corporate speaking agent to say, hey, I'm a public speaker, if you're waiting for someone to give you VC funding to call yourself an entrepreneur, you, you will be waiting the rest of your life. <laughs> and that the people that are able to go out and do it, because they don't teach you this in high school or college or when you're growing up, the people that do it, just go out and do it. <laughs> they just start doing it. They don't know what they don't know and they learn along the way. And you know, I think that I think that that's an incredibly powerful mindset to have. You know, this idea of, I, I mentioned this in the book, kind of career, career ladder authority, which is like college degrees, master's degrees, working 10 years at a company, getting some form of certification. Now, it's not to say that those things don't matter. They do. And if you have them, great. You can use them to your advantage. But if you don't have them, you can still kind of give yourself um, the authority to do things, right? And, and mm -hmm. give yourself permission to try things. And to, to kind of, as you said, hop to a new lily pad, you don't have to wait for some green light. Um, the green light is now, and it's, it's only going to start to happen when you do it. And yeah, so no one told me to write a book. I just went out and did it. Um, you know, in, in 2013, I was going through this, you know, this, this transition, and I just started writing about it, and other people were interested in it. And I went out and did it, and then I self-published it. And then two years later, I actually got you know, a book deal to write it after I actually had written a full version of the book. So if I had waited for that initial invitation, the book would have never been done, right? Mm -hmm. You just have to go out and do it. And I think, you know, if we wait for this, this invitation, it's, it's never going to come. Um, and especially in this job market, it's about proving yourself and going out. If you're, you're interested in something, trying to make it happen. And I think the lily pad career metaphor is all about experimentation it's treating your life, uh, your career, but also your life as a as an experiment, as this kind of hey, I don't have to have these strict definitions that I am an architect only, or I'm only a writer, I'm only a podcaster, I'm only um, I only work at this business, and this is my title. I can have many of those definitions, and I get to choose, right? Mm -hmm. You know, someone at happy hour doesn't get to choose for me what I am. I get to say, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm, I, I do customer experience at Airbnb, and I run my own podcast, and I'm a writer, you know, and I'm a, you know, study, uh, practicing to become a yoga teacher. Great, mm -hmm. awesome. Um, if you wait for someone to kind of say, you are this and you are this because of this certification, and you have put in your 400 hours, like, forget it. <laughs> you know, you, you, it's just not going to work. Um, I think. This, this day and age is all about inventing your own path. And that's one of the reasons why I have that in the, in the subtitle. I think that people starting their careers, millennials, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, and actually people of all ages now, even that have had 20 or 30 years of experience, need to kind of invent their own path. Before, it was the sense that, hey, you became part of a company, you picked a field, and that field was going to take care of you. And you were able, you know, that company was going to look after you for the next 30 years, it's no longer like that. You've got to look out for yourself and you got to invent your own path, even within a company, even once you land that kind of dream job or perfect job or, 
your business is making money and, you know, you still got to invent yourself. You still got to constantly be experimenting. Yeah, no doubt. Um, well, another thing I want to ask you about is you make a distinction in the book between mediocre and meaningful work. And um, I'm wondering, you know, how you define each one and, you know, how do other people figure out what these things mean to them? Yeah, I think we all know what me- mediocre work is. Mediocre work, we've all had a job um, that's just kind of pushing the paper where you're waking up every day, going in, uh, you don't really care about what you're doing. Um, you don't really care about what the company is selling. <laughs> you don't really care that much about your colleagues. Me- mediocre work just pays the bills, right? It's mm. something that passes the time, something you're not fully engaged in. Uh, it's a cause or company you don't believe in, doesn't really align with what you care about. Maybe it hopefully adds to your financial well-being, but it doesn't allow you to make your unique contribution to the world. So it doesn't t- take into consideration who you are, what you actually care about, the gift that you can make uh, to your community or the society. And in contrast, um, I think meaningful work reflects personal meaning. Uh, So the definition I use in the book, and it's more of a framework than a definition, because I don't think you can define something like meaning or fulfillment or happiness, right? They're very mercurial, abstract concepts. It's it's more about the input and the questions that you ask, not about the final definition, Mm-hmm. Um, but the framework I use is that meaningful work provides personal meaning, reflecting who you are and what your interests are, allows you to share your gifts to help others, provides a community of believers that will support your dreams, and is financially viable given your desired lifestyle. So obviously that financial, financially viable piece is still in there, right? We're talking about meaningful work, not how to take a meaningful vacation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has to pay the bills, uh, has to sustain you and, and, and your family. Um, or whoever is depending on you, but it also reflects who you are. It also allows you to share your own gifts. It also provides a community of believers. And I think that those are really important factors and that the people that I consistently interview that seem to have said that, hey, I found meaningful work or what I'm, I'm finding what I'm doing right now very meaningful, these were the common themes. And then it allows us to kind of break down and ask the right questions within each of those buckets to kind of get closer and closer to something that's meaningful to you. And I think that this idea of meaningful work is different than per- perfect work, right? Mm-hmm. So this idea that the perfect job might not exist, but a meaningful job and the right job for you does exist right now, right? Mm-hmm. So you might not hit all those things, but you can hit some of them. Um, and I, I, I think uh, I use a, you know, there's also a, a visual way of thinking about this um, kind of as a Venn diagram in terms of alignment aligning your gifts with the impact you want to have in the world with your community that supports your own quality of life. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, if we were all to fill out those kind of ask those questions and fill out those buckets, we'd all have very different diagrams and very different definitions of meaningful work. You know, yours would be completely different than mine, than our friends, than your partners, than whoever, because we're all different, Right. Everyone has a different desired quality of life. Some people are, you know, paying off a huge mortgage. Some people want to live in the fanciest apartment in San Francisco. I have four roommates. I'm okay with that, right? Some people want time to to run and do exercise every day. Some people, you know, are happy kind of getting to work at seven in the morning and they don't need to exercise first thing. So we all have different kind of standards, but we need to ask these questions because we're all different. And mm-hmm. I think that all too often the working world and the, you know, especially corporate environments, 
forget to have people do this reflection and they just assume that everyone works on the same schedule and does the best work. You know, they all will work the same, want to work the same hours at the same times in the same place, but we're not robots, right? Mm -hmm. Human beings are different and we all care about different things. So we have to kind of do that reflection. And once we do that reflection, we're able to kind of find out where we best fit um, within a company or or if we're doing our own thing how we can spend our time. So I think that probably the most interesting thing that uh, came up in my mind as you were talking about all of that was that for a long time, I think we've tried to see, you know, working at a job and work that's meaningful as mutually exclusive, where they don't seem to be based on on what you've just told me. Um, because I think the, the thing that happens, you know, and I know that I probably help to create some of this narrative because what do I do? I interview people like you. I interview people like Tim Ferriss where it's kind of like, yeah, quit your job, change the world. That's like the kind of zeitgeist of the internet. But I, I, I appreciate this perspective because I think it's really important. Yeah, and I think that it's, you know, one thing I, I, I try to push away from a little of the quit your job, you know, follow your passion, live the dream mantra because I think yeah. that that's suspect and isn't actually the right career advice for, for everyone. For some people it is. Um, but I think, you know, this idea that entrepreneurship is the answer works for some people, but you know, if everyone becomes an entrepreneur, who's going to work for all those companies, (laughs) right? (laughs) We need amazing, smart, innovative entrepreneurs, people working within systems, within companies that can actually get things done, that can design websites, that can write talking points, that can, um, sell things, you know, or else nothing's ever going to happen. Um, we can't just have entrepreneurs, you know, sitting on the beach working from anywhere. It's great for them. It doesn't necessarily do, do much for everyone else. So I think mm-hmm. it's this more of this idea of maybe quit your job, depending on if you're miserable and right. your job means nothing to you and find what's meaningful to you. And even if you currently need to stay in your job because it's sustainable and you don't have another option, that's totally fine you could still take many steps to find more meaning in your current job, even if your current job sucks, mm-hmm. right? Or to prepare yourself for making a move in two or three or five years when you can. Um, so I think that this is a much more empowering mindset than just kind of the press a button, quit your job, everything's going to be all right because you listen to a bunch of podcasts. <laughs> right. I actually think that that's not true um, and that you know maybe the blogosphere is doing a disservice from constantly perpetuating that stereotype because it it is it is really a myth and entrepreneurship is very hard it's not for everyone and some you know i I profile a couple people in the book who actually were entrepreneurs and then found that they could have more meaning and more impact by joining forces with another company so you know i I profile this guy john leland um who started a, a company a few years ago called my project is it was helping people uh, it was using AI to help people uh, motivate their their bases, their networks, their communities for for crowdsourcing ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of you know helping not just crowdfunding like Kickstarter, but but helping people actually think of um, how they could crowdsource ideas for their business within their via their social networks. Um, and there wasn't really a good option for selling the company. He you know started to kind of you know is trying to pay three people, you know racking up credit card debt. There really wasn't uh, an option for selling the company, so he actually took a job at Kickstarter uh, as the director of of special projects. So, you know, and he says in the book, the impact I have now is so much greater than the impact I had running my own startup. (laughs) 
um, you know, now, you know, before I had kind of he before he says before he had employees to take care of. Now he has a large role in, in helping shepherd the path of one of the world's most culturally impactful tech companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's actually making more of an impact on his mission, on his mission, which is to empower creatives with Kickstarter than he was working out of a coffee shop with three people. Mm-hmm. Right. Which actually makes a lot of sense. So this isn't to say a startup idea is bad. If you got a startup, you should rock it. But if it's not working out, there are other options. And sometimes if you're thinking about impact, joining a successful company with your own skills and gifts can actually be, you know, a really smart idea. Um, so I, I think that that's an interesting anecdote because, you know, all too often we, we listen to podcasts mm-hmm. uh, like this one, which are f- fantastic and a lot of creative podcasts, which are really all about, you know, I'm out there alone making it happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, it's romantic. It really is. But if there's one thing I've learned, you know, community is so important. And this book got made because of the community I surrounded myself with. Um, if you're trying to make, uh, to do a creative venture alone, you will fail. Mm. Um, if you're trying to kind of just be out there alone and make it happen because you want to reject the, you know, the man or working for the man, you know, good luck. Cause I think it's actually about building alliances so that the most successful creatives and entrepreneurs have actually surrounded themselves with those believers, um, who actually have built alliances with, with companies that can bring them in to do their work and workshops and speak, um, have found really amazing places where they can share their writing or their art. So it's, it's the more you go off on your own, the more you're actually going to have to build that community, right? Because it's not given to you as it, as it is in a normal office setting. You know, normally people that work in an office have people around them every day. They show up at nine o'clock and it's like, Hey Mark, how was your weekend? Oh, what are you doing on, you know, what are you doing on Friday or how the kids, um, when you're creative, you got to build those networks and communities yourself. Um, and I think that that's a challenge, but I think that the people that seem to thrive with their work are also thriving with the people they surround themselves with. Hmm. All right. So I think you brought up something that is like really important. And I want to ask you about it because you you mentioned that this isn't easy to decide to go out and do your own thing. So I was curious in your own path to, to getting to where you're at, what have been your darkest and most difficult moments and what did you learn from them? Great question. Um, yeah, I think, um, there have been quite a few. (laughs) Um, but I think that, you know, I think that for me, you know, early on kind of, I, you know, I'd started this, um, blog and I started writing about kind of the process of quitting my job in DC and leaving the Peace Corps and moving to San Francisco and it was going great and I was starting to get this momentum and a couple friends were like, hey, Smiley, you should write a book. And I was like, yeah, maybe I should write a book, you know? So I was like, well, you know, I'll go meet with this editor I know who's at a local publishing, a local publisher in San Francisco, a small house, but um, they do a lot of design, design books. And, you know, I, I met with her, we had a, we had a beer and she was like, Hey, you know, Smiley, I've been reading some of your blogs, you know, it's good stuff, but you're just not qualified yet. Right. You're, you're just not ready. Uh, you're not at the point you need to be to get a book deal. And this was kind of like the reality, you know, sets in. So I started getting all these like, yeah, man, maybe I'm not that good. <laughs> maybe this was a really bad idea. <laughs> maybe I should have definitely not quit my job at the Peace Corps. Why the hell am I doing this? Like, I'm never going to, this is never going to be financially viable. 
and your, your dreams start to like diminish before your eyes and you start to be like, man, like this is a small publisher telling me like this isn't going to work. Um, but then she was like, you know, hey, you, you've got a lot of momentum. You should you should self-publish. You should, you know, maybe crowdfund or kind of figure out a way to make this happen and just do it yourself. So I think at that point I had this two options. Um, one is just to quit. Basically be like the first time you get rejected, that's it. And I think that that's the biggest thing for for people going off on their own is they're you're gonna get rejected straight up, like you're gonna reach out to your favorite blogger or podcaster and be like, hey, have me on your show, and they're gonna be like, no way, dude, <laughs> you're you're just not that famous or important yet, um, and you're gonna kind of you know try to get a book deal, and they're gonna be like, no way, you're not that good of a writer yet, and or you can keep going, and you know that was a dark time for me because I started to second guess. Um, second guess my my leap. I had already kind of done the hard part, which is like that actually quitting and going off and trying it, and you know having to get healthcare myself and being like, all right, can I afford and make make it in San Francisco as a writer and doing kind of a bunch of side gigs here and there to to get by. But here it was someone in the you know as I talked about kind of that authority that career ladder authority space, a publisher telling me I wasn't good enough. Do you quit or do you keep going? And so I actually decided to listen to her advice and keep going, which is, I think, the, the most important decision I, I made uh, in the past four years was, OK, I'm going to make this happen myself. Right. I'm going to crowdfund uh, for my own book. I'm going to treat myself as the publisher. And so I did an Indiegogo campaign um, and I raised thirteen thousand dollars from 500 people in 40 countries with just basically the title and a rough outline. So I said, hey, I want to write the, this book about overcoming your quarter-life crisis. It's called The Quarter-Life Breakthrough. Here are some things that are going to be in it. I haven't written it yet. Do you want a copy? When it's done, can you help me you know, pay for a cover designer and an editor and you know, be able to make this project work? And all of these people started giving me their money without the book being even finished which is an incredible thing. And you realize that people actually really want to support your creative dreams if, you know, and support your journey if they can be part of the process. And so I used that money to self-publish the first version of the book in, in, in 2014. And so it was like going from this moment of a huge low, like a major bummer. Like I came back from that beer with the editor just being like, man, like this isn't going to work. I'm not that good. What the hell was I thinking? I wonder if my old job at the Peace Corps is still available. <laughs> to being like, wow, like I just went out and did this. And I remember, you know, when it released on Amazon in, in 2014, you know, I used uh, self-publishing. So for for people out there know that know these platforms, but use CreateSpace, Amazon CreateSpace for your paperback, and then Kindle for ebook. Um, I started getting all this great reaction. Um, you know, I started getting Amazon, you know, five star Amazon reviews from people I'd never met before. I started getting these emails from random people being like, your book changed my life. This was amazing. This was exactly what I needed to hear. And it was it was so cool because no one had, no one famous had published it. It was just me. <laughs> you know, I made up, you know, 20, 20s and 30s press was the name of my imprint that I just made up. That's basically like my bedroom in my, you know, with in my house that I shared with four roommates. And then I kind of I reached back out to that editor that I had a, that I had had a beer with. I sent her a copy of the book and a link to the Amazon page with all of the feedback and all of the Amazon reviews and a couple of links to some press clips. 
And she was like, wow, Smiley, like, this is pretty good. Like, I'm really impressed. Like, I told you to self-publish. I didn't really think you were going to actually do it or do it this well. You really did it. You know, I took a year of my life and I went out and did it. And, you know, so I came back in for a meeting with her. Um, and she still said, hey, look, this publisher is not the right fit for you. Um, it's not going to work out. But she introduced me to her friend um, who's a literary agent in New York City. Um, and then we ended up working together. So it was this amazing kind of two year <laughs> going from an extreme low of I'm not I can't be a writer to uh, securing an agent and then getting a book deal to do a formal published version of this book. Um, and I think the lesson there is just keep going, mm-hmm. uh, um, especially when you get rejected. So when you when when it's really when when you're feeling low, when it's all feels impossible when you're a hero or, or, or you get that rejection letter that you thought was going to be your break, that's actually the time you have to dig in the most. That's the time where you're like, oh, man, you know, and you can scream, you can go for a run and just like let it all out because it does suck. But you also have to be able to get back up. Um, you know, it's kind of like the cross country race. You got to be able to be like, well, got to go up, you know, just had a bad, bad race. Uh, got to wake up the next day and go for a run. Right. Even though I just embarrassed myself and even though that was I, I blew it, you know, the next day you put on your shoes and you go out the door and, you know, the next day you 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 you, you keep writing or if, if you're writing a book and you try to get it, you just keep going. And, you know, you can't let these things deter you. You can't let rejection get in the way of, of keeping going. If, if you do, you just can't succeed as a creative because you it's part of the journey. Um, embracing rejection is part of the journey. I think, you know, you read a lot about writers and creatives and artists. They, they, they tend to have a love affair with rejection. They laugh about it. They, they like post up, you know, I, I don't know if you've read uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic. Um, but she basically started kind of like having like a file or I think posted on her wall, like rejection letters from, you know, publications like GQ or Esquire, or the New Yorker when she was kind of building her writing career. Cause it's like that, that's actually your, that's actually shows how hardcore you are, how many rejections you have. If you've only been rejected once, eh, you haven't been in the game that long, right? You start to have five, 10, 15 rejections. All right. Like you're ready for success because you, you've hustled, you've been in the game. You're putting yourself out there. So one more question about this. Um, you know, in your timeline of the wandering journey, you mentioned two things that I happen to be intimately familiar with that the moving in and out of your parents' house. Um, <laughs> I had to ask about that, uh, because I'm curious how that affected your sense of morale, your narrative about the whole situation. And more importantly, how you navigated, you know, the, the mental part of that without losing hope. Yeah, this is a tough thing. And anyone that's out there that's currently living with their parents, like this is for you because I, um, I was actually in my twenties moved back home with my parents twice. (laughs) So once after college, which I think is a common time when you're kind of figuring it out, you don't have that first job quite lined up. You need to save money. You've got student loans. You're freaking out. You can't afford an apartment in a city that you want to live in. So you move back back home. Um, so that one has, has less of a stigma against it. But then I moved back home with my parents when I was 27 and that's when you start to like go to a bar and meet up with your friends from high school and they're like, oh, okay, so you're living at home, you know? 
And if you're trying to date when you're living home with your parents, like that's, that's pretty brutal. And you just kind of feel like a loser. Um, so it's really hard to stay up. And I think that, you know, I talk about this in the book, um, two things. I think you have to be able to, you have to be able to laugh about it. And you also have to be able to, you know, you have to be realistic and be like, yep, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm saving money. This is the intention behind this as a move. Because sometimes I think actually moving back home with your parents is a really smart idea um, because it gives you this time to kind of reflect. You know, it's really hard to reflect and take time out when you're paying rent and you're living in an expensive city and you're going out to bars and restaurants all the time that you can't really afford. So moving back home can actually be an incredible time to retreat almost and remember, get back to kind of basics. Um, but there's a balance there because you can also start to go insane. <laughs> and I think that, you know, you can move back home for a short while, but unless your parents are the coolest people in the world and your living situation is really chill at, at your parents' house, you got to get out of there at some point because you just, you, you know, your parents treat you like you're in, still in high school and it's, it's just not a, it's not a very good environment to be fully creative. Um, so I would say to people that are, that are currently living at home with their parents, um, it's going to be all right. This is not forever. Uh, how can you make your time as productive as possible? So how can you kind of treat this as a self-reflection retreat, reading certain books, watching certain Ted talks or documentaries, doing a lot of research, um, taking the pressure on yourself, off yourself that you normally have to pay rent to actually think about what you really want to be doing or even to start a side project while you're at your parents' house, whether it's a blog, a podcast, doing your art, starting a business, um, volunteering for an organization. Um, how can you make that time as productive and useful as possible? And, you know, kind of setting this, uh, I think it's important to set deadlines for whatever you do, but saying, Hey, I'm moving back home from this date to this date. By this date, I have something lined up because there has to be an end to this, right? So in three months or six months, I'm moving to you know Denver or Seattle or New York or whatever it is, um, and I'm going to start doing something else um, because you don't want to get stuck in that rut for too long. Um, I will also say, though, that one of the best places I found um, for my writing, is, this is just being honest, is actually going to my parents' house. Um because I live in San Francisco and, you know, I have a great community here and there's a lot of stuff going on. But when I go back home, there's not much to do. So mm -hmm. I end up just waking up every day and, and writing. So for both the self-published version of the book and the published version, I actually went back home for um, three to four week blocks um, and got a ton done. I got the bulk of my manuscripts written when I was at my parents' house. I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing. Maybe it's because, you know, my mom like wants to take care of me and there's great food in the fridge and I, I don't know what it is or I'm back in, in my bedroom and it kind of makes me think of all these stories from growing up, which is great as a writer, obviously, to, you know, recall stories and think of, you know, memories because that's the foundation for good writing. Um, but I think that that's a trick I've learned is that I actually can be, can have like a, get, get a lot, be very creatively productive at my parents' house. It's not to say that I want to move back there. I'm doing very well in San Francisco and I love my independence, but, um, you know, 
it's a it's a little trick I have for sometimes when I need to get a lot done. Just go leave my current environment where I don't have any friends like, and go someplace where my friends aren't going to bother me. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, this has been awesome. I, I I love you know the perspective that you've given us because it's been very honest and transparent. So I have one last question, which is how we finish all our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, great. Um, great question. Um, I think, you know, I think people that are unmistakable, um, are, are really looking, um, beyond themselves and are really trying to activate community. Um, and the people that I've met on my journey and the people that I profile in the book are people that have, seriously invested from a financial standpoint, um, from a personal standpoint, emotionally in, in, in their networks and the people around them and are spending their days, not just looking for financial gain or personal gain or getting in the press or getting notoriety, but are deeply, deeply committed to, to passing the torch and, and looking out for people around them. And kind of this idea of uh, of really activating community. I, I, I think that people that are unmistakable build community. I think it comes down to that. And I this this book is about building uh, your community. And I think that as we go more and more into a technological world of of AI, of robots, of of humans replace of robots replacing a lot of work that had pre- has previously been done by humans. Community is going to become ever more important. Meaningful community and looking people in the eye and being able to support each other as we follow our dreams is going to be the difference between, um, you know, succeeding and and not and 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 that's what's most important. Well, like I said, this has been fantastic, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your insights and your story with our listeners. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Next time on The Unmistakable Creative. Um, plasticity is a base feature of uh, nervous systems, of brains and, and, and other nerves. Um, plasticity isn't something that only happens when you're young. It only happens when you, you know, work really hard at, at studying or doing something to yourself. It's happening, you know, always. And it's not so much um, if you're going to change, it's how. Andrew Hill joins us to talk about biohacking your brain. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.